I'm Kayla Bro, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. Today's episode features part two of my interview with my younger brother, Alex, who is very, very intelligent beyond my capacities. And I I just love the dynamics of our friendship and of the conversations that we have. And I love him very, very much. And I'm so glad that he agreed to do this interview. As I mentioned in the last podcast, I did not want to choose between having to break up the interview even more, edit it down even further, and having a super duper long podcast episode. So I decided to go with the option of having a two-part episode, and I'm glad that I went with that decision. Um, Just a brief update about me. I'm still up here in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities area. As I'm recording this today, I just got back from Revolution Church there at the Bryant Lake Bowl and really, really enjoyed Jay's message today. He just really, really nailed it. He focused mainly in Romans and talked quite a bit about Paul, uh, as well as just the idea of sin and how we're accepted as broken people. We're fully accepted and he kind of made an allusion to AA, just how when you come back in after being gone, after a slip up, you're not ostracized, you're not judged, you're not excommunicated, like sadly we see in many churches. I know in my church growing up, whenever someone in the church would slip up, it was like this huge, big deal and everyone would freak out. And it's like, why would you be so shocked that a human is a human and that we make mistakes? And unfortunately, oftentimes that person would be excommunicated effectively and all contact broken off with that person instead of trying to meet them where they are and and trying to rectify the situation. And of course, there are consequences to our actions. Of course, there are always consequences. We oftentimes end up hurting the people that we love the most because of our actions but not even offering the space in which a person can be sort of rehabilitated and not through programs, not through having to go through, you know, a eight-week-long re-institution, re-indoctrination into the church, but just through love and through, honestly, guidance of the Holy Spirit, to use the church term. And I want to say again, my aversion to such church terms is entirely based on my own personal baggage and personal associations with the church and from just from my own past baggage. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, at all with using such terminology, but I oftentimes just feel personally uncomfortable doing so, completely out of personal reasons. Uh, Anyhow, see, I really, really enjoyed my time up there uh, at Revolution Church with Jay Baker. I encourage you again, please, please... Listen to his podcast, and please, if you can, donate. Uh, The church is struggling, that's no secret, and so any support, financially or otherwise, goes miles and miles further than you could ever anticipate. So please give generously to Revolution Church, and like I said before, please do that before you would even consider donating to my silly little podcast that I do. So anyhow, here's the rest of my interview with my brother Alex, which is pulled from an episode of a podcast that I used to do with my brother Nate that I did in his absence. Honestly, I should have just aired it as its own separate thing as a part of a new podcast just because Nate was not there and it was so out of format and out of character for that podcast itself. 
So I should have had it be a part of the Air Grievances podcast instead of the Bipolar Agnostics podcast, which is the name of the podcast that we used to do, which is still available on iTunes if you're curious at all. And if you want to see my personal spiritual development, that's definitely a place that uh, would amplify that and give a little bit more background on me and and my beliefs and, and the evolution of them personally. So anyhow, here is the rest of my very, very interesting very, very engaging conversation with Alex. Actually, there's a video about that that I was going to show you. Do you want to watch that now? Okay, cool. The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. It's the kind of belief system of people who say... I don't believe in God, I believe in science. But there's a conflict in the heart of science between science as a method of inquiry and science as a belief system or a worldview. And unfortunately, the worldview aspect of science has come to inhibit and constrict free inquiry, which is the very lifeblood of the scientific endeavor. Since the late 19th century, science has been conducted under the aspect of a belief system or worldview, which is essentially that of philosophical materialism. I think that as we break out of it, the sciences will be regenerated. What I do in my book, The Science Delusion, is take the ten dogmas or assumptions of science and turn them into questions, seeing how well they stand up if you look at them scientifically. None of them stand up very well. Essentially, the ten dogmas, which are the default worldview of most educated people, are first that nature is mechanical or machine-like. The universe is like a machine. Animals and plants are like machines. We're like machines. In fact, we are machines. Lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase. Second, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made up of unconscious matter. There's no consciousness in animals, in plants, and there ought not to be any in us either, if this theory is true. So a lot of the philosophy of mind over the last hundred years is being trying to prove that we're not really conscious at all. Dogma three, the laws of nature are the same now as they were at the time of the Big Bang, and they'll be the same forever. Dogma four, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. It never changes in total quantity, except at the moment of the Big Bang, when it all sprang into existence from nowhere in a single instant. The fifth dogma is that nature's purposeless. There are no purposes in all nature, and the evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Dogma six, biological heredity is material. Everything you inherit is in your genes or in cytoplasmic inheritance. It's material. Dogma seven, memories are stored inside your brain as material traces. Somehow everything you remember is in your brain in modified nerve endings. No one knows how it works, but nevertheless, almost everyone in the scientific world believes it must be in the brain. Dogma eight, your mind is inside your head. All your consciousness is the activity of your brain and nothing more. Dogma nine, which follows from dogma eight, psychic phenomena like telepathy are impossible. Your thoughts and intentions cannot have any effect at a distance because your mind's inside your head. Therefore, people believe these things happen, but it's just because they don't know enough about statistics or they're deceived by coincidences or it's wishful thinking. And dogma 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. That's why governments only fund research into mechanistic medicine and ignore complementary and alternative therapies. Those can't possibly really work. They may appear to work because people would have got better anyway or because of the placebo effect. 
Well, this is the default worldview, which is held by almost all educated people all over the world. But I think every one of these dogmas is very, very questionable. First, the idea that the laws of nature are fixed. This is a hangover from an older worldview. People thought that the whole universe was governed by eternal mathematical laws. When the Big Bang came in, then that assumption continued, even though the Big Bang revealed a universe that's radically and developing and evolving, growing and cooling, and more structures and patterns appear within it. But the idea is all the laws of nature were completely fixed at the moment of the Big Bang like a cosmic Napoleonic code. Modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. Well, in an evolutionary universe, why shouldn't the laws themselves evolve? After all, human laws do, and the idea of laws of nature is based on a metaphor with human laws. It's a very anthropocentric metaphor. As C.S. Lewis once said, to say that a stone falls to earth because it's obeying a law makes it a man and even a citizen. It's a metaphor that we've got so used to, we forget it's a metaphor. In an evolving universe, I think a much better idea is habits. I think the habits of nature evolve. The regularities of nature are essentially habitual. This was an idea put forward at the beginning of the 20th century by the American philosopher C.S. Peirce. And it's an idea which various other philosophers have entertained, and it's one which I myself have developed into a scientific hypothesis of morphic resonance. According to this hypothesis, everything in nature has a kind of collective memory. Resonance occurs on the basis of similarity. As a young giraffe grows in its mother's womb, it tunes in to the morphic resonance of previous giraffes it grows like a giraffe and it behaves like a giraffe because it's drawing on this collective memory. It has to have the right genes to make the right proteins. But genes, in my view, are grossly overrated. They only account for the proteins that the organism can make, not the shape or the form or the behavior. Every species has a kind of collective memory. If you train animals to learn a new trick, for example, rats learn a new trick in London, then all around the world, rats of the same breed should learn the same trick quicker just because the rats have learned it here. And surprisingly, there's already evidence that this actually happens. Anyway, that's my own hypothesis in a nutshell of morphic resonance. Everything depends on evolving habits, not on fixed laws. But I want to spend a few moments on the constants of nature too. Things like the gravitational constant, the speed of light, are called the fundamental constants. Are they really constant? When I got interested in this question, I tried to find out. Handbooks of physics list the existing fundamental constants and tell you their value. But I wanted to see if they'd changed, so I got the old volumes. I went to the patent office library here in London, and when I did this, I found that the speed of light dropped between 1928 and 1945 by about 20 kilometers per second. It's a huge drop because they're given with any decimal point of error. And yet, all over the world, it dropped, and they were all getting values very similar to each other with tiny errors. Then in 1948, it went up again, and then people started getting very similar values again. I was very intrigued by this, and I couldn't make sense of it, so I went to see the head of metrology at the National Physical Laboratory. Metrology is the science in which people measure constants. And I asked him about this. I said, what do you make of this drop in the speed of light between 1928 and 1945? Oh dear, he said, you've uncovered the most embarrassing episode in the history of our science. <laughs> so I said, well, could the speed of light have actually dropped 
And that would have amazing implications if so. He said, no, no, of course it couldn't have actually dropped. It's a constant. Oh, well then how do you explain the fact everyone was finding it going much slower during that period? Is it because they were fudging their results to get what they thought other people should be getting and the whole thing was just produced in the minds of physicists? He said, we don't like to use the word fudge. I said, well, what do you prefer? He said, well, we prefer to call it intellectual phase locking. <laughs> so I said, well, if it was going on then, how can we be so sure it's not going on today? He said, oh, we know that's not the case. I said, how do we know? He said, we've solved the problem. And I said, well, how? He said, well, we fixed the speed of light by definition in 1972. <laughs> So I said, but it might still change. He said, yes, but we'd never know it because we've defined the meter in terms of the speed of light. So the units had changed with it. So he looked very pleased about that. They'd fixed that problem. <laughs> but I said, well, then what about big G, Newton's universal gravitational constant? That's varied by more than 1.3% in recent years. And it seems to vary from place to place and from time to time. And he said, oh, well, those are just errors. And uh, unfortunately, there are quite big errors. So I said, well, what if it's really changing? I mean, perhaps it is really changing. Then I looked at how they do it. What happens is they measure it in different labs. They get different values on different days. And then they average them. And then other labs around the world do the same. And they come out usually with a rather different average. And then the International Committee on Metrology meets and average the ones from labs around the world to come up with the value of big G. But what if G were actually fluctuating? What if it changed? There's already evidence, actually, that it changes throughout the day and throughout the year. What if the Earth, as it moves through the galactic environment, went through patches of dark matter or other environmental factors that could alter it? Maybe they all change together. What if these errors are going up together and down together? For more than 10 years, I've been trying to persuade metrologists to look at the raw data. In fact, I'm now trying to persuade them to put it on the internet with the dates and the actual measurements and see if they're correlated, if they're all up at one time, all down at another. If so, they might be fluctuating together and that would tell us something very, very interesting. But no one has done this because G's a constant. There's no point looking for changes. You see, here's a very simple example of where a dogmatic assumption actually inhibits inquiry. I myself think that the constants may vary quite considerably, well, within narrow limits. And I think the day will come when scientific journals like Nature have a weekly report on the constants, like stock market reports in newspapers. You know, this week, big G was slightly up, the charge on the electron was down, the speed of light held steady, and so on. <laughs> That's one area where I think thinking less dogmatically could open things up. One of the biggest areas is the nature of the mind. This is the most unsolved problem that science simply can't deal with the fact we're conscious. That our thoughts don't seem to be inside our brains. The official view is there's a little Rupert somewhere inside your head. Your experience is inside your brain. I'm suggesting actually that vision involves an outward projection of images. What you're seeing is in your mind but not inside your head. Our minds are extended beyond our brains in the simplest act of perception. I think that we project out the images we're seeing and these images touch what we're looking at. If I look at you from behind, you don't know I'm there. Could I affect you? Could you feel my gaze? There's a great deal of evidence that people can. The sense of being stared at is an extremely common experience and recent experimental research suggests it's real. Animals seem to have it too. I think it probably evolved in the context of predator-prey relationships. Prey animals that could feel the gaze of a predator would survive better than those that couldn't. This would lead to a whole new way of thinking about ecological relationships between predators and prey, also about the extent of our minds. If we look at distant stars, I think our minds 
minds reach out in a sense to touch those stars and literally extend out over astronomical distances. They're not just inside our heads. We know so little about our own minds that where our images are is a hot topic of debate within consciousness studies right now. I don't have time to deal with any more of these dogmas, but if one questions it, new possibilities open up. And I think as we question these dogmas that have held back science so long, science will undergo a reflowering, a renaissance. I'm a total believer in the importance of science. I've spent my whole life as a research scientist. But I think by moving beyond these dogmas, it can be regenerated and become interesting and, I hope, life-affirming. Thank you. So essentially he's talking about this whole different way of looking at the universe and about how nature follows patterns and habits instead of laws. Mm. I mean, what's your just general initial reaction to that video? It's obviously a very, very, very fringe part very of fringe. science. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of attention he's trying to draw to it with the whole band TED talk. I feel like band sort of gives the idea that like you're going to get locked up or you're going to get in trouble for watching it when really it was just something that TED didn't want to publish formally. Do you think that he knew that it was banned before he filmed it? I think it became banned afterwards because they were unwilling to put it onto their website. Uh If you look at the TED explanation for why they do things like that, it's because there are like third-party associates almost with TED Talk. Okay. They don't always upload things if they feel like it's highly flawed logic. Okay. But anyways, that's just for the title of the video. That doesn't really have to do much with it. But overall, I don't really agree with the guy, but there, there were a couple of lines... Like, I remember he said how a lot of times science is anthropocentric. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which you definitely saw, especially in the past with evolution, which always placed humans at the top, right. the final product. And that's true. But all in all, I feel like a lot of the things he said were sort of misconstrued. Like, when he was talking about how the speed of light changed from a few years ago, mm-hmm. he was like, it was 20 kilometers a second slower, mm-hmm. which is quite a big difference. And it's actually not. Because the speed of light is 186,282 miles per second. So in kilometers, that's around 300,000 kilometers a second. Okay. So a difference of 20 is extremely minute. So it could just be a misreading? Or just experimental error. He was saying how they they always add a little, you know, plus or minus point one percent experimental error, and that actually kind of falls within that experimental error. I see. Okay. And then the other kind of problem I had with him, which you agreed on when we were watching it, was how he would say recent studies had shown, Mm -hmm. or Scientists are concluding that, Uh which is sort of like how if I were to go to Google and I could type in any celebrity's name followed by is gay, Uh and I would find lots of articles agreeing with that (laughs) statement. If you're a good scientist and you are quoting actual data, you always have to talk about it more specifically. Uh So that other people can look into what you're talking about. add credit. Validate it. Yeah, unless there's such a wide science consensus that that's not necessary. But when you're Mm. talking about a new way of looking at things, you have to provide some context Something that fringe you have to give reference for. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. I think that that also builds on the idea of, in the past, there have been lots of scientists who were sort of put down or weren't taken seriously, and then later we figured out that they were actually right, Yeah. and how everyone was making fun of them. Mm -hmm. And when you consider that that is the truth, then I think that tempts people who Mm -hmm. agree with fringe science to be like, well, one day, everyone's going to know. But like that's really very, very minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. This might be kind of off topic, but um, would you agree with this statement that you assert atheism as your belief system? Yes. If you acknowledge that we're always learning new things and nobody ever has the absolute answer, how can you assert atheism as being the absolute answer? 
I mean, I don't think that there are any absolute answers except for like that saying, I think, therefore I am. The mm-hmm. only thing that you know is true is that something exists because you exist, mm-hmm. but that's the only thing you can know for certain. So you can't say for certain that there's no God, or or you can say for certain that there is no Christian God. If you want to be really, really, really technical, you can't assert that anything is true or false. Right. But because having conversations Requires, is completely useless, yeah. we have to make reasonable presumptions. Uh-huh. And under the reasonable presumption is how I arrived at I understand. that. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, something that stood out to me from that video was I had asserted the viewpoint of materialism up until, like, honestly, Rupert kind of convinced me to reconsider that viewpoint. Because he brings up the point that science can't explain why or how matter becomes conscious and becomes mobile and becomes what we would call alive. For context, would you explain materialism? Okay, yeah, so that... um, just everything is matter and that's it. There's no spiritual element to it. There's no unseen thing that possesses matter. Right. There's only matter. Cool. So he talks about how like the point of science is to assert that there is only matter, but then if there is only matter, it's kind of disproving consciousness. So it's like using your consciousness to disprove consciousness, I think is is what I got from what he, what he was saying. Okay. I don't think there has to be a spiritual side in consciousness mm-hmm. that it can all just be matter. And this sort of goes back to a related topic about discussing free will. Uh-huh. I don't really think there's free will in the sense that people typically describe it, uh-huh. which is the idea that there's this physical body and then there's something else put in it which is making the decisions about what the body should do. I see, okay. Or, like, there's something disconnected from the body that uh-huh. is, like, remote control car saying, lift your arm. Like a soul, quote-unquote? Yeah, like a soul. Uh-huh. And I don't think that there has to be that conventional view of free will. In philosophy and sociology, there's always been a question of nature versus nurture as far as are you born with a certain personality uh-huh. and behavioral patterns or is it something nurtured through your environment and you just sort of start off as a blank slate and then you sort of become the way you are because of the environment you're placed in mm. most people would say it's, it's a balance in between yeah but and um, I, I would say it's a paradox yeah yeah in any case whichever those two cases may be mm-hmm. you can't control that. You can't control the genes you're born with or the Mm. environment that you're raised in. Mm. That's a good point. So your behavior and everything is not actually up to you, if that makes sense. Okay. The thing is, though, that the illusion of free will is so perfect that it doesn't matter Uh because I feel like the reason I sat down to talk to you now is because I decided to do that Yeah. when really it's just the result of things which are completely out of my control uh-huh. and therefore I don't really have any free will or independent action. Okay. So I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Would uh-huh. you agree with the statement then? It's like the, the whole um, Aristotle approach on conversation by like repeating back to somebody what they said okay. to try to understand what yeah, they said. Yeah. So would you say that it's true that inside of time... You made the decision to sit down and talk to me, but outside of time, you don't have the free will because you are you with your genetics in your environment, with whatever occurs around you, you're going to react how you're going to react. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair summary. I think that what we discuss is consciousness, like my ability to feel emotions or know what's happening in my environment. Mm -hmm. It's resulting from something that's not within my own control. 
the consciousness is basically the result of all the chemical synapses that occur in your brain. Mm-hmm. But that's all very materially based and very science based. Yeah. And even if neurologists have unwinded every single thing to do with that branch of science, uh-huh. I don't see why there would be a need for any external a sp- spiritual, quote yeah, unquote. a sp- spiritual aspect. Uh-huh. Or any proof that there is one. Okay. I see what you're saying, and that helps me to understand how materialism could explain consciousness still. But I still don't understand how can my corpse move around and be alive? Is it just like because those synapses are firing just incidentally? Yeah. So, I, I mean, you could either say that the consciousness is either like a collateral byproduct. I mean, apart from consciousness, I mean, okay. like something being alive. Uh huh. Matter being alive and moving around. Mm-hmm. What's the difference materially? If there's no spiritual realm, mm-hmm. materially, what's the difference between a corpse and a person that's walking around? Just sort of the electrical activity occurring in the brain and like the firing of synapses or whatever. And what causes that electrical activity to, to start taking place? We- uh, in terms of evolutionarily, mm-hmm. that's something that we don't know when that started happening. Okay. Or how it started happening. Okay. And actually, I remember Bill Nye, he's uh-huh. more of a television personality, but yeah. all the same. He, I love Bill was, Nye, though. Yeah. yeah, he was doing a discussion with the uh, guy who runs the Creationist Museum, which was right next Uh to where we grew up. Right. And when he was asked that same question, he says, we don't know. Yeah. And that's something that everyone in that audience who are very, very different spiritually from what you're describing. Uh He says that that's something that scares people. Like, they don't like hearing, we don't know. Yeah. And it's like, well, then if you're a scientist... Yeah, see... And we don't know how it started. And that's really interesting and fascinating uh to think about. But we don't know right now. Yeah, 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 for sure. And for me, like, for me as a Christian, it took me a long time to get to this place. But to be able to say, I don't know, is like, like, that is God. I'm not asserting this to you. I'm not telling you that this is how it is or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that from my understanding, I've acquired a sense of peace in being able to say, I don't know. I don't understand, Mm -hmm. you know? And being able to rest in that, like, in the, in the mystery of it, it, like, almost like mystery with a capital M, I guess, in spiritual terms. I'm trying to put that into terms that agrees with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I'm not inserting this to you. Yeah, as sure, 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 sure. Yeah. But I almost see that as taking comfort in not knowing how a magician did a trick. Because as soon as you find out, then there's no entertainment value in it. Mm. And so saying, like, I don't know... But taking comfort in that mystery, I don't think that necessarily validates the mystery itself. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so either. Mm. When Bill Nye says, I don't know, is he saying it out of frustration? Or is he saying it out of, it's, it's exciting because it's a mystery? Um, I think he's really just saying that scientists haven't re- yet reached the point of knowing. I don't think he was terribly frustrated. Although, when he did an interview... I think it was maybe with Jimmy Fallon or something. Mm. So he was getting frustrated, but he's trying to keep on being civil. Mm. But it, I, mean, I think there is some fun in the, that pursuit of finding out the mystery. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Speaking of human behavior, that's something that, like, you might objectively say, like, what's the point in figuring that out? Uh-huh. But there's some sort of human drive of curiosity. Right. Mm-hmm. That just almost makes it fun. Yeah. <laughs> One more important yeah, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Thing, yeah. Is that when you're talking about a spiritual element, 
do you think that there's the spiritual element for animals, for like our dog, Holly, over there, that she has the same spiritual element or that humans are unique in that? Um, I would say that whatever energy possesses my corpse to be moving around right now uh-huh. is probably very, very similar or the same energy that possesses animals and cells, mm-hmm. you know, to move around. Yeah, I think then though, there's also a question of at what point does that energy start existing? Like, so if you go back to human history with the zygote, which is the first cell when sperm and egg combine, uh-huh. the two. And so at that point, you'd probably agree that it's not a conscious being, right? Sure, when they first combine. So then the, the, mm-hmm. there's still the question of at what point, like, Oh, on this day, yeah, right. Pregnancy day one eighty three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when it occurs, right? And so that's sort of what I say in that it's more of a natural development rather than there's, there's some sort of spiritual energy which just mm-hmm. appears mm-hmm. or gets sucked into the body or however you right, see right, right. It. Yeah. Well, I think maybe I agree with you in that last statement, mm-hmm. in that there's not. I don't think that there's a point. Like I know that. Specifically, Mormons assert that there's a point where the spirit enters the body or whatever, or like, you know, there's other forms of Christianity where they assert that the spirit enters the body. And I don't even know, man. Like, I kind of like not knowing because having that mystery is beautiful and acknowledging that looking back throughout history, every time that we asserted that we had it all figured out, maybe we did have another piece of the puzzle figured out, but... Every time that we assert that we have it all figured out, we never do. And I don't think we ever are going to. Sure, yeah. On a spiritual or a physical sense. Unless everything would be boring at that point. Yeah, it would suck. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't be any mystery. Actually, they they did that in Futurama, where the professor, in this non-canon version of the story, they solve the theory of everything. Mm. And all of science is figured out. Uh And then he gets super depressed because there's nothing to do. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly, yeah. And that's, that's the same thing like with philosophy. Mm-hmm. If you were to finally figure out the philosophy that explains human behavior and why we do what we do and how the mind works and stuff like that, like, that would suck. <laughs> yeah. It'd be so boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know what? That's a good lead into the next video that we watched. After six million years of boredom, the evolutionary ascent of our species from the last common ancestor, something extraordinary happened to us. It was a kind of emergence into into consciousness when we became fully symbolic creatures. And this uh, great change has been defined as the single most important step forward in the evolution of human behavior is intimately associated with the emergence of the great and transcendent rock and cave art all around the world. Uh, Over the last 30 years, uh, researchers led by Professor David Lewis Williams at the University of Witwatersrand uh, in South Africa and many others have suggested an intriguing and and radical possibility, which is that this emergence into consciousness was triggered by our ancestors' encounters with visionary plant and the beginning of shamanism. If you analyze the cave art, and there's not time to go into the details here, but there are so many that make it clear that this was an art of altered states of consciousness, of visions, and that plants like the Amanita muscaria appear to have been directly connected with this sudden 
and radical change. When I got interested in this mystery, I went down to the Amazon, where there are still shamanistic cultures today, where they drink the powerful visionary brew ayahuasca, of which the active ingredient is dimethyltryptamine, which is actually closely related at the molecular level to psilocybin. The DMT in the ayahuasca brew is contained in these leaves, and there they mix it together with this vine and allows the DMT in the leaves when the two are married together and cooked in water to be absorbed orally and takes us on a four-hour journey into extraordinary realms. Now, it's uh, no joke to drink ayahuasca. The ayahuasca brew has a foul, foul taste. Pretty soon you may well be vomiting, you may well have diarrhea. So, you know, nobody's doing this for recreation. And, And I'd like to add that I don't think any of the psychedelics should be used for recreation. They have much more serious and important mission with, uh, with, with humanity. So we're not doing this for fun. But what draws people to ayahuasca again and again to brace themselves for this experience, and you do have to brace yourself, is its extraordinary effects at the level of consciousness. And one of those effects has to do with creativity, and we can see the creative cosmogenic impulse of ayahuasca in the paintings of ayahuasca shamans from Peru, the amazing visions that they reproduce. As these paintings show, another universal experience of ayahuasca is the encounter with seemingly intelligent entities which communicate with us telepathically. Now, I'm making no claim one way or another as to the reality status of these entities we encounter. Simply that phenomenologically, in the ayahuasca experience, they are encountered by people all over the world. And most frequently of all, the uh, spirit of ayahuasca uh, herself, Mother Ayahuasca, who is is a healer. And although she's kind of the mother goddess of the planet, she seems to take a direct personal interest in us as individuals to heal our ills, to want us to be the best that we can possibly be, to correct errors and mistakes in our behavior that may be leading us down the wrong path. And and this is perhaps why, and it's uh, an untold story really, uh, ayahuasca has been fantastically successful in getting people off harmful addictions to hard drugs such as heroin and cocaine. Jacques Mabit at the Takiwasi Clinic brings heroin and cocaine addicts out there for a month, gives them 12 ayahuasca sessions, and they have encounters with mother ayahuasca during those sessions that lead them not to wish to take heroin or cocaine anymore, and more than half leave completely free of their addiction, never return to it, and don't even have withdrawal symptoms. And the same incredible healing work was being done in Canada by Dr. Gabor Mate until the Canadian government uh, intervened and stopped his healing practice on the grounds that ayahuasca itself was an illegal drug. Now, I have some personal experience of this. I I have not been addicted to heroin or cocaine, but I had a 24-year non-stop cannabis habit. The basic uh, truth is that for 24 years, uh, I was pretty much permanently stoned. And uh, I enjoyed being stoned. And I felt that it helped me with my work as a writer, and perhaps at some point uh, it did. But when I first encountered ayahuasca, I'd already been smoking cannabis for 16 years. And almost immediately, ayahuasca started giving me messages that this was no longer serving me, that it was leading me to behave in in negative and unhelpful ways towards others. And of course, I ignored those messages. But that negative behavior that ayahuasca was pointing up did actually get worse and worse. I don't want to put down cannabis, and I believe it's the sovereign right of every adult to choose to smoke cannabis if they wish to do so. But I think I was overusing it. I think I was abusing it, not using it responsibly. And I became more and more paranoid, jealous, possessive, suspicious. I was subject to irrational rages. I often made the the life of my beloved partner, Santha, a misery. And when I went down for my regular encounter with ayahuasca in October 2011, 
I was given the most unbelievable kicking by Mother Ayahuasca. And I was put through an ordeal. It was a kind of life review. And it's not an accident that ayahuasca is the vine of the dead. I was shown my death. And I was shown that if I came to death and what awaits us after death, without having corrected the mistakes that I was making in my life, that it would be a very bad thing to make for me. And, and, and actually, Mother Ayahuasca literally took me to hell. And that hell was a little like the place that the ancient Egyptians called the judgment hall of Osiris, where our souls are weighed in the scales in the presence of the gods against the feather of truth, of justice, of cosmic harmony. And I was shown that the path I was walking, my abuse of cannabis and the behavior associated with it, was going to lead me to be found wanting uh, in the judgment and that I might face uh, annihilation in the world beyond death. So perhaps not surprising, I gave up cannabis and uh, I've never smoked it again since then. And actually, and again, I'm speaking only personally with no comment on others' use of cannabis, it's as though a monkey has been lifted off my back. I'm liberated in incredible ways. Far from my creativity being inhibited, I, I find myself writing much more productively, much more creatively, much more focused and much more efficiently. I've begun to be able to address those negative aspects of my behavior which cannabis had revealed and hopefully to make myself slowly, it's a long progress, into a more nurturing, more loving, more positive person. And this whole transformation, it really has been a, a personal transformation for me, was made possible by this encounter with death that Mother Ayahuasca gave me. And, you know, that leads me to ask, what is death? Our materialist science reduces everything to matter. Materialist science in the West says that we are just meat. We're just our bodies. So when the brain is dead, that's the end of consciousness. There is no life after death. There is no soul. We just rot and are gone. Actually, many honest scientists should admit that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science and that we don't know exactly how it works. The brain's involved in it in some way, but we're not sure how. Could be that the brain generates consciousness the way a generator makes electricity. If you hold to that paradigm, then, then of course you can't believe in life after death. When the generator's broken, consciousness is gone. But it's equally possible, but nothing in neuroscience rules it out, that the relationship is more like the relationship of the TV signal to the TV set. And in that case, when the TV set is broken, of course, the TV signal continues. And this is uh, the paradigm of all spiritual traditions, that we are immortal souls temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow and to develop. And really, if we want to know about this mystery, the last people we should ask are materialist reductionist scientists. They have nothing to say on the matter at all. Let's go rather to the ancient Egyptians who put their best minds to work for 3,000 years on the problem of death and on the problem of how we should live our lives to prepare for what we will confront after death. And the ancient Egyptians expressed their ideas in transcendent art, which still touches us emotionally today. And they came to certain very specific conclusions that the soul does survive death and that we will be held accountable for every thought, every action, every deed that we have lived through in our lives. So we better take this precious opportunity to be born in a human body seriously and make the most of it. And in these inquiries into the mystery of death, the ancient Egyptians weren't just exercising their imaginations. They highly valued dream states. And it's now known that they used visionary plants like the hallucinogenic blue water lily. And it's interesting that the ancient Egyptian tree of life has recently been identified as the Acacia nilotica, which contains high quantities of DMT, the same active ingredient that we find in ayahuasca. 
Now, it's difficult to imagine a society more different from the society of ancient Egypt than our society today. We hate visionary states in this society. In our society, if we want to insult somebody, we call them a dreamer. In ancient societies, that was praise. And we have erected huge apparatuses of armed bureaucracies who will invade our privacy, who will break down our doors, who will arrest us, who will send us to prison, sometimes for years, for possessing even small quantities of psilocybin or substances like uh, DMT, whether in its smokable form or, or, or in the ayahuasca brew. And yet, ironically, DMT is, we now know, a natural brain hormone. We all have it in our, in our bodies, and it's just that its function remains unknown for lack of research. And it's not as though our society is opposed in principle to altered states of consciousness. I mean, billions are being made by the unholy alliance of psychiatrists and, and big pharma in over-prescribing drugs to control so-called syndromes like uh, depression or attention deficit disorder in teenagers. Um, and we have a, a, a love affair in our society with alcohol. We, we glorify this most boring of drugs, uh, despite the, 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 the terrible uh, consequences that it often has. And of course, we love our stimulants, our tea, our coffee, our energy drinks, our sugar, and, and, and huge industries are, are built around these substances, which are valued because of the way they alter consciousness. But what all these approved altered states of consciousness have in common is that none of them contradict or conflict with the basic state of consciousness valued by our society, which I would call the alert, problem-solving state of consciousness, which is good for the more mundane aspects of science. It's good for the prosecution of warfare. It's good for commerce. It's good for politics. But I think everybody realizes that the promise of a society over-monopolistically based upon this state of consciousness has proved hollow, and that this model is no longer working that it's broken in every possible sense that a model can be broken, and that urgently we need to find something to replace it. The vast problems of global pollution that have resulted from the single-minded pursuit of profit, the horrors of, of nuclear proliferation, the specter of hunger that millions every night go to bed starving, that we can't even solve this problem despite our alert problem-solving state of consciousness. And look what's happening in the Amazon, the lungs of our planet, this precious home of biodiversity, the old-growth rainforest being cut down and replaced with soya bean farms so we can feed cattle so that we can all eat hamburgers. Only a truly insane global state of consciousness could allow such an abomination to occur. I did a back-of-an-envelope calculation during the Iraq war. It seems to me that six months' expenditure on the Iraq war would have solved the problem of the Amazon forever, would be sufficient to compensate the peoples of the Amazon so that no single tree ever needed to be cut down again to garden and, and look after that amazing resource. But we can't make that decision as a global community. We can spend countless billions on warfare, on hatred, on fear, on suspicion, on division, but we can't get together the collective effort to save the lungs of our planet. And this is perhaps why, when I've asked shamans about the sickness of the West, they say it's quite simple. You guys have severed your connection with spirit. Unless you reconnect with spirit and do so soon, you're going to bring the whole house of cards down around your heads and ours.
And rightly or wrongly, they believe that ayahuasca is the remedy for that sickness. And it's true that the message of ayahuasca, the universal message, is about the sacred, magical, enchanted, infinitely precious nature of life on earth and the interdependence of material and spiritual realms. And it's impossible to work with ayahuasca for long without being deeply and profoundly affected by this message. And let's not forget that ayahuasca is not alone, that it's part of an ancient worldwide system of the targeted, careful, responsible alteration of consciousness. It's recently been, been shown by scholars that the kaikion used in the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece was almost certainly a, a psychedelic brew, that the soma of the Vedas may well have been a brew based upon the Amanita muscaria mushroom. We have the DMT in the ancient Egyptian tree of life. We have the whole global cultures of surviving shamanism. And what it's all about is a state of consciousness that's designed to help us find balance, harmony. The ancient Egyptians would have called it mart with the with the universe and to remain mindful that what we're here to undertake on earth while immersed in matter is fundamentally a spiritual journey aimed at the, the growth and perfection of the soul, a journey that may go back to the very origins of what made us human in the first place. And I stand here invoking the hard-won right of freedom of speech to call for and demand another right to be recognized, and that is the right of adult sovereignty over consciousness. There's a war on consciousness in our society, and if we as adults are not allowed to make sovereign decisions about what to experience with our own consciousness while doing no harm to others, including the decision to use responsibly ancient and sacred visionary plants, then we cannot claim to be free in any way. And it's useless for our society to go around the world imposing our form of democracy on others while we nourish this rot at the heart of society and we do not allow individual freedom over consciousness. It may even be that we're denying ourselves the next vital step in our own evolution by allowing this state of affairs to continue and who knows, perhaps our immortal destiny as well. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, he was really interesting. The center of his talk is, on the surface level, is, is ayahuasca tea, or DMT, the chemical DMT. But his real, I, th I think his real driving question is, what was it that made Homo sapiens into Homo sapiens sapiens? What made us start drawing cave art? What made us so distinct as a primate from other primates? Mm. Yeah, to make this discussion not have to go on for days and days, uh -huh. we'll limit it to that uh, Homo sapiens thing. Yeah. But it should also be mentioned that humans aren't really unique in that, per se, mm. because other, if we're just talking about primates, they can play or they can appreciate art or whatever. Yeah, in a, yeah. In a more limited sense. So uh, humans aren't necessarily different in type, more like just different in degree. Mm. But we'll just focus that, it on that's Homo a good point. sapiens, because otherwise we're going to have to talk about every single exception or other example. Yeah, that's a really good sure. point, though. Yeah. So he points out that, like, cave art starts emerging in history at the same time in different places simultaneously. And he attributes that to DMT. That's the part that I don't agree with, necessarily. I think that maybe... If there is some validity in that, and there could be, I don't know. Like you said, we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything. But if there is validity in that... Yeah, for, for the purposes of discussion, we have to the, make some assumptions. Some assumptions, yeah. Then, from a Christian perspective, I would say that that would be like the equivalent of the quote-unquote breath of life. Like, the best way that whoever wrote the Bible could understand God giving man the breath of life would be, according to Graham... Ayahuasca tea. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Do you agree with him that psychedelics were needed for our evolutionary change towards becoming what we have become as Homo sapiens sapiens? Uh, no, I think I'm with you on that. Mm. Although, at the same time, it's worth mentioning that any sort of drug, psychedelic or not, they just sort of change existing brain chemistry Mm -hmm. and causes excessive releases of certain chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so, in that way, there is almost the connection because of the existence of uh, appreciation of art or of consciousness, like we were talking about, yeah. is sort of connected to psychedelics. Yes. But only in so far that you're mm-hmm. just adding more or changing existing brain structure. Right, right, right. You're not necessarily giving it something that hadn't been there before. He even says that, though, in the video. He says that DMT is in our brain, and it's released when we dream. It is, yeah. But that ayahuasca just amplifies it and kind of um, it expedited the process of humans becoming more artistically aware and therefore what he would refer to as a higher level of consciousness. Hmm. Again, though, I think that's kind of problematic because it's like the breath of life. Mm. You don't it, like being held in permanently. Like if some humans decide to use ayahuasca, I don't see the long-term impact on that causing a, a permanent advancement in mm-hmm. appreciation of anything. Yeah. If you appreciate it for like a couple hours. While right, you're on it. Right, right. So for he himself, he said that he had like a dozen sessions with ayahuasca and came away from it convicted that he needed to stop using drugs recreationally, that drugs are supposed to just be used to advance human consciousness, which I'm not agreeing with. I'm just trying to um, articulate his opinion. Fairly, Artic- yeah, articulate. fairly articulate for him. So, like, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I'm trying to get at this question. Like, Were the drugs needed for our change, or did they just expedite our change? Oh, okay. That's a fair distinction. Like, was it just a catalyst for what would actually happen? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. But what do I know? He's pretty fringe. Most people would disagree with him. Yeah, he's very fringe. That's what he he says. Yeah. That's what I thought was so interesting to to bring up. It's not necessarily that either of us are going to agree with anything that he says. I agree with maybe a couple of things that he says, but... It's just so so fringe that I think it's worth discussing. I think that anything that challenges your current worldview can only help you to further investigate why you believe what you believe. Or to to better appreciate it. To better appreciate it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And then the question is, like, if he's right about cave art all coming about at the... And this goes back to also, he doesn't reference... How did he even know that those came about at the same time? Is it, like, carbon dating or something like that? Oh, yeah, actually, that's a good point. I don't know about the history of psychedelics. I don't know if the Neanderthals used ayahuasca. Yeah, that's a good question. And so, like, I, I wonder if, like, assuming that he's right, that cave art all appeared at the same time, and that this, what he would call raise in human consciousness, started at the same time, then how did humans come across ayahuasca at the same time? in different places across the world. I just don't see, like, how that would make any sense without, like, some sort of spiritual intervention which wouldn't logically make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, back in college, this was, like, ten years ago, I did acid with some friends, for all of us, for, for my whole group of friends, it was our first time doing acid. We had this big piece of paper laid out in front of us, and we were all drawing on it together, 
And each of us was so focused on what we were drawing, we weren't looking at what the other one was drawing, at least consciously, I can say. Mm-hmm. Maybe out of the corner of our eyes, we were aware of it. We weren't consciously aware of what the other was drawing. But we were all drawing things that had to do with the same themes. Mm-hmm. We were all drawing things that had to do with, like, birds. And it was just, like, kind of creepy how yeah. similar our drawings <laughs> were. And the creepiest thing was... After hours and hours of us all drawing on this same huge piece of paper, we all just, like, slammed down our drawing <laughs> utensils at the exact same oh, wow. moment. That is a bit creepy. It was really it's, creepy. it's actually uh, analogous to the way Ouija boards work. Because if you have four people who are subconsciously driving it to the same words... Mm. I don't know. I think that's, that's actually a bit comparable. That is kind of weird, though. Yeah. yeah. But could that be... And maybe this is even me arguing your point. Could that be like a self-fulfilling prophecy that we anticipate, oh, this is going to give us some sort of a raised consciousness, like raised spiritual experience. And so the moment that we see the other person start to set down their writing utensil, uh-huh. we set down our writing utensil. I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. And then that that could kind of almost negate Graham's assertion that the cave art came about at the same time, and it was essential for us to become what we are now. Mm. But I think also part of his message is that more people should take it in order for us to advance our human evolution to the next stage. Mm. Do you think he's yeah. saying that? Yeah, he did put a a lot of stock by it, for sure. So much so, this doesn't really have to do with the philosophical discussion. I just thought it was kind of humorous how he was always Mother Hiawaska. Mother Hiawaska, yeah. Which made him sound like a bit of a hippie, this old guy. I thought it was kind of funny, that old guy. Not that that has anything to do with the meaning behind the video, but... No, yeah, for sure. It's worth pointing out, yeah, for sure. And I think that adds to the inaccessibility of his message. Mm. It adds to the the fringe aspect. Because he keeps saying Mother Hiawaska, Mother Hiawaska... That turns people off to, to his message. Even if it, I don't think that inherently should disregard the merit of his message, but that definitely will in people's minds if they associate him with like a hippie culture. Right. As a Christian, if I were around saying Jesus is Jesus that, that's going to turn a lot of people off. Yeah. You know. Whereas if instead of saying Jesus, I say love. You know, people can relate with love more than they can relate sure. with the idea of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And then yeah, he talks about the idea of using drugs versus abusing drugs. I thought I thought there's validity in that. Yeah. That's not even unique to drugs. Just about anything can be used versus abused. Yes. Like a football game, like mom's uh former coworker's husband punching a hole in the wall after the Chiefs lost. Oh wow, I didn't That's know sort that. of like abuse of a sport almost uh-huh. to have been so invested in it. And I think that applies with anything recreational, drugs or otherwise. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um Let's see what else I have here. Oh, yeah. So, if matter and energy are the same thing, which Rupert says that they can be created or destroyed, and actually, I heard something from Neil deGrasse Tyson recently saying that there are instances in outer space where molecules or waves, which are synonymous, we now know, can just, like pop up out of nowhere and be quote-unquote created out of nowhere for an instant, be created, and then dissipate. Hmm. I'm not familiar with Tyson's specific thing about that, but I, I do know that there's synonyms. It's called, uh, isn't it, a particle wave duality? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So that particles and waves would be synonymous and that time and space would be synonymous mm-hmm. is like, you know, at one time that would be considered fringe science. But now it is becoming an accepted theory. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm not really sure where I was going with that one. Um, do you think there's any use for Graham's accounts and experiments with ayahuasca if there is no afterlife, if there is only material existence? Is there any, like, application? Is there any validity in human consciousness being raised, or is it just incidental? Mm, I mean, that's a good question, but without there being an afterlife... And this is the only chance that we have for consciousness. I would say that heightening it or having as many diverse experiences with you can adds more to it. Yeah. Whereas if you have eternal life afterwards, then mm-hmm. this is virtually meaningless. Right, right, right. Yeah. And this is kind of outside of the interview aspect of this. But, like, I kind of see whenever the Bible refers to the kingdom of heaven, it seems like it's always talking about building it here and now. In Matthew 11, it talks about during John the Baptist's time, the kingdom of heaven was run by evil men. Hmm. And then when Christ came along, like that changed or whatever. So like that kind of infers that the kingdom of heaven is a state of mind, which we're striving towards, in which everyone just loves each other and lives in the golden rule Hmm. in a perfect sort of way. Instead of being an afterlife. Instead of heaven being a place that you go to, heaven being a place that we build here on earth. Right. I think that's a more productive way of thinking about it, at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, Let's see. Where are you over an hour? Yeah. I can do a little more, but I've got to get to school. Can you just explain the Napoleon thing real quick? Yeah, okay. All right. So this is on a completely unrelated note. This is just something that I brought up with Caleb. So Napoleon was privately very a-religious. He was basically as close to an atheist as you could have at that time, when really everyone who would have been considered an atheist, they were deists because there wasn't a solid theory of evolution. Scientists like founding fathers of the U.S. or Napoleon or whatever, they were deists. But he was extremely a-religious. And yet he saw religion as being used as a reasonable tool for society and Mm. government, Mm -hmm. and both for his own uses as being able to solidify his political influence through religion or through the Catholic Church, because France is predominantly Catholic, but then also as a moral tool, because he thought that it was a good way to construct morality in society by having them believe in a religion. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't think that you're a better person if you're religious or not. Mm. But under the assumption that you are, that that is true, that having a religious society is more moral. So just because it poses an interesting hypothetical, we're just going to assume that that's true and that a religious society is more moral. Okay. Because the interesting question that that raises is, is that preferable? Like, if you can convince people something that you don't believe because you think it makes them behave better, is that okay? Like, is it better to have people who are kinder to each other and more loving Mm. if it requires Mm. them to believe something that is not true? Like, is that acceptable to lie to them to make them better? (laughs) On a somewhat similarly related topic, at least in the sense of when it would be advantageous to yourself to have other people believe something that you don't, would be, for example, if I were the president you know, of the United States, I would prefer that my Secret Service bodyguards see the office that I hold as a sort of intrinsically divine, you know, sort of a, an institution. Like, there's inherent merit in the position of the office, regardless of who holds the office, because I would definitely not be willing to jump in front of a bullet to save someone who I do not like. And honestly, even if I fully believe in the president, I still think that I'm probably self-centered enough that I would not be willing to jump in front of a bullet to save him. 
but if my secret service believe that there's inherent merit and inherent honor or credibility in defending this sort of democratic magical institution then even though i think that's a bit silly when it goes to the point of dogmatism I would want them to believe in that so fervently and adamantly that they're willing to die to save me, even if I wouldn't be able to do that for someone else. Or not. Right, right, right. And I don't know. That's just an interesting question. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. A, something to think about. Yeah, for sure. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, gosh, I don't know. Because like I said, I don't necessarily think that that is true. But mm. if I were to say that assumption is true, I really don't know. I, I don't like deception inherently. Like what I mean yeah. is like, I really don't like parents saying that Santa Claus is real. Right. Because you think it makes a child happier mm. or that it's cuter for a parent to lie to them like that. Right, right, Or right. Uh, my friend in Kentucky, William, when his oldest brother was really little, he would pick his nose all the time. Uh-huh. And so his parents told him that if he did that, he was going to start picking his brain out of his nose so that he'd stop. <laughs> okay. And so okay. even if it produced good results because he stopped picking his nose in public, I just don't like the idea of a parent making their child stupider <laughs> because they think it's better for them. Uh-huh. And the fact <laughs> is, it's nearsighted because at some point that kid is going to have to confront the fact that, mm-hmm. oh, my parents lied to me. Yeah. And most people think, oh, it's fine. It's all cute. Like, no one says, I'm so angry that I was taught about Santa Claus. Because most children, when they grow up and they have kids, they're going to do the same lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that, that I'm really conflicted about. Because when mom and dad first told me about Santa Claus, I freaked out and started crying. Oh, wow. Because huh. they're like, yeah, tomorrow's Christmas. Santa's this guy who's going to come down the chimney. He's going to leave you a bunch of presents. But he won't come until you're asleep. Yeah. And I was like, you think he's going to break into our house? <laughs> he's going to come into our house while I'm asleep? Yeah. I don't even know this guy. And he's going to come inside our house and break <laughs> yeah. in. And that's that's another good point because it's also used as an encouragement around the holidays to be good. Because mm. it's like he's got a naughty and nice list. Uh-huh. And so it's actually the same analogy with religion. Exactly. Like making them believe something, even if it makes the kid cooperate or he stops throwing tantrums uh-huh. and he produces better results, it's still done by... By lying. Yeah. As a parent, if you decide to tell your kids about Santa Claus or in your example with the booger thing... Mm-hmm. Picking your brains out of your nose, yeah. <laughs> out of your head through your nose. <laughs> then once you start questioning, oh, they lied to me about Santa Claus. They lied to me about boogers. They lied to me about the Easter Bunny. Why would you not question whether or not they lied to you about God? Yeah. Mm. There's not really a, a conclusion there. I think that's a really good way to leave it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that was my conversation with Alex. And again, I I feel like it just went really, really well. And I love, I can't say enough, I love the dynamic that we have between us, how he keeps me honest and he corrects me when I need to be corrected, honestly. And that's something that I need and that I invite and that I'm definitely self-aware about. And of course, being self-aware about something doesn't cure it. It just maybe makes you more receptive to the correction that you need. Anyhow, that's just kind of me speculating. But thanks for listening. You can find the videos that we used on YouTube. You can just search for Rupert Sheldrake, The Science Delusion, and also for Graham Hancock, The War on Consciousness. Those are the two videos that we use. And we'll provide links to the actual YouTube URLs in the show notes. 
Of course, you can find us on soundcloud.com slash air dash of dash grievances. You can go to facebook.com slash air of grievances. You can go to iTunes and find us there. Just search for air of grievances. Please, 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 please feel free to send us a voicemail. I'm very excited to get that up and running and to have sort of a dialogue with you all, uh, whether you agree or disagree. I'd welcome any sort of comments, questions, or anger, uh, venting of personal baggage, maybe like I do on the show so often. Um, you know, anything, insults, <laughs> anything at all, and I'll play it on the podcast. The number for the voicemail is 612-460-0364. Feel free to call and leave any sort of message that you would like, and I encourage you to do so. Thanks for listening. Again, I'm Caleb Bro, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. Thanks. See you next time. Christ grew and learned from the priests To have new truths realized Christ learned so he finally teach that God is man and man is priest. That God is man and man is priest. A law of science. Side of time, an archetype lived visually. An archetype lived visually. Orchid.
Orchestration moving Orchestration moving 